Hello, my name is Alexander Joseph, and I write stories. These stories show up in the form of short stories, poems, novels, scribbles on sticky notes in the middle of the night that are unreadable in the morning. On this podcast, over the sound of the dog barking next door, of my roommate doing his laundry, of the heat turning on and off, of the sirens in the distance, I read some of the things I've written. This is American Wasteland. Hello. It's been a while since my last podcast. I've moved into the house I was renovating all summer and it's turning into winter. It's very windy outside. And I'm thinking about this year and all the things that we've had to give up and all the things that we've been able to get. One of the things that I have tried to make a routine out of is going on a solo road trip across the West each year. And this year I was planning on doing that in March and uh, then everything was shut down. So that was paused. And uh, the year that I sort of discovered my love of road trips across that desert and all those plains and all the mountains that are between here and California and Washington and that sort of whole western front, um, I wrote a book and it was called Five Steps to Somewhere. And you'll hear soon why it's called that. And uh, I went on a hike the other day with my girlfriend, and we were sitting on top of a mountain looking out over this vast expanse of changing aspens and motorcycle sound. And uh, I had this sort of realization about art, or my art, I guess, that it's not enough to just read it on the page. You know, I think part of what I want to do as a writer is to create community and where's the community and me writing something while I'm alone and then you reading it while you're alone? And in this podcast format, I guess you, whomever you are, can engage in my work as if I'm sitting there reading it to you and that is exactly what I'm doing. Here I'm not alone, I'm reading to you and when you're listening to this, you're not alone because I'm with you reading you this story. So I guess the realization was that I wanted to create a communal experience and then I kind of realized within that realization that I'd already done that which was this podcast and so I decided to start to read some of the stuff that I haven't read before because I thought I might get it published or so on but this book has been rejected maybe 30 or 40 times and I'll keep sending it out but I figure why not share it in the way that is meaningful to me and so because of this year's various tragedies. I couldn't go on a road trip, and now we're going to go on a road trip together through my book. So buckle up, pack some almonds and raisins, and put your sunglasses on. (laughs) Get ready to head out. Without further ado, here is Five Steps to Somewhere. I'm going to be reading this book in five parts. So here is the first part. Thank you for going on this literary journey with me. 
Here is Five Steps to Somewhere. This is a book about a trip I took. I want to start with a poem I wrote. With this poem, I hope to set the mood for telling my travels. The poem is titled Freedom in Six Words and goes as follows. Full tank, pedal down, open road. Step one, setting out. One. There are, as I have heard it, five parts of a pilgrimage. The first part of any journey or so on is the process of getting ready for the journey. This getting ready is more than just taking time to pack. This time is also for reflection, for goodbyes, and for the soon to be gone, to wait for some sign or reason or act of God which somehow justifies this journey. This confirmation comes in the form of a letter, or a phone call, or an arrow-shaped cloud in the sky which screams, get gone, you fool. This confirmation exists to help the one about to set out feel better about leaving everything behind. Each pilgrimage must start with a blessing of sorts. It is necessary to get this permission from whatever holy and transparent thing above before leaving, for there is a certain small death which occurs when a trip is set out upon. There is a shedding of skin that happens when one walks out the front door. There is a certain internal hum that starts when boots hit pavement, when tires crackle out of a gravel driveway, when the course is set, and all there is left to do is go. 2. At the start of most great adventures, there is an element of stagnation which pushes the adventurer out the door. Frodo wanted to see the world. Kerouac needed something to do. Steinbeck and Charlie had lost touch with their country and needed to reintroduce themselves to the road. Wallace was paid to do things we all knew he would dislike, but his genius and wit made it all worthwhile. Janaski bummed about because he hated everything and everything hated him back, and Thompson was always on the move looking for that next wild thing or trippy high. Now I don't consider myself in the company of those greats listed above. It's as if they built the road with hard hands and sweat and hot blood, and I am merely driving in my old gray car upon that road. I am no great adventurer, nor am I some master in my field. I'm a young man who gets more rejections from magazines and story contests on a daily basis than I get of really anything else. But one thing I do have in common with those great men listed above is that I too felt something stale in my life. 3. Maybe the real reason for leaving doesn't present itself until you've already left. Maybe the real reason you left will only come years after your trip. But for me, I think it happened before. That's to say I was faced with my reason for wanting and needing and desperately trying to get out before I even left, and frankly I'm not sure if it was a good thing or bad thing. I was, and still am in many relationships of all varieties, and before this trip, well, a few weeks before the departure date, it seemed all was well and dandy and completely solid. But then the departure date was pushed back a week, and the people in my life, well, some of them, and the things and mornings and laughs we once shared, began to crumble in my hands. There was a rotten core somewhere. 
There was an absolute and utter sense of death and dysfunction in the way particularly two of my relationships were going, and they sort of came to head on the weekend that I would have or should have been gone. And maybe these toxic parts of my life were my real reason for wanting to leave in the first place, but were existing, squirming, and growing in this sickening, quick way that things like cancer do beneath my skin, unbeknownst to the conscious and constantly overthinking me. Maybe there is a part of deep humanity that is still very much stuck in the fight-and-flight response. I think this is most likely the case. I think we are still functioning on some ultra-ancient binary operating system, and when faced with strife or discomfort, or in my case, rot and failing relationships, we have two options. This society is the least violent society in the history of the world, albeit still very violent, and in some ways we either have somehow removed the fight part of our internal programming, or we have repressed it down to a fraction of what it once was to what I would say is our detriment, but that is another book. So we are left with one choice, and that is for us to slowly back away with our hands up from whatever danger or pain or bad thing we face. We have but one option, and that is to flee. Our only choice has become backing away until we have reached a safe distance, at which point we can turn and sprint, going fast to literally anywhere but where we are. So maybe inside of me I had already begun the process of fleeing. Maybe my body was tensing up to run. Somehow the extra week of being where I was, instead of being long gone, made all of this built up, fast twitch, tension, release, causing the end, or at least the beginning of the end of these two relationships I was about to no longer be a part of. 3A when you leave a place, when a place is left and you find yourself somewhere else, it is almost easy to imagine that the place you left has simply ceased to exist. It's as if somehow anywhere you are not is just a place or a house or a vast mountainscape seen in a dream and nothing more. And when you are driving, when the road is moving fast beneath your tires or your feet or is shrinking beneath the hum of a plane engine, there is a feeling like nothing but the vehicle you're in is the only real thing out there in a world of blur. Maybe that's why I wanted to leave. Maybe I wanted my reality to be unmade or made unreal by my departure. Maybe I wanted to unravel the life I made or maybe I wanted to escape things that I only subconsciously knew were failing. So before I was to actually go on my trip, what I have come to understand is the very reason for the trip in the first place being my need to sort of run away from my dying relationships, worked itself out before I had even set out. What I'm trying to get across here is that maybe the whole reason for my trip in the first place, other than potential spiritual enlightenment, was to get away from the problems I had, even if I was yet to realize that they were in fact problems. And so the bad things came to head, submerged from the repressed places below my flesh, and before I was to leave, I lost a lover, and I lost a friend, not to real death, but to that small demise which so often occurs between people who no longer speak or see each other or do all those things they once did together. I think the unconscious parts of me thought that by leaving and going on some pilgrimage or really just a road trip that I would be able to hit restart on everything going wrong. But that extra week of time revealed what was hidden and from which in some ways I was running away. So, was there still a reason for the trip? Well, yes. 
I can always concoct a reason to go explore, but I would say that the initial reason with which I set out was more or less solved. The trip was shaping into a solo into the desert and the shrubby plains which surround it, no longer for the purpose of getting away from the parts of my life that I did not wish to face. Now, instead, the trip formed itself into a sort of period of mourning, a time for me to sit alone in my car as the whole world flashed by, hours upon hours of nothing but me in the rushing air and the songs from the radio in which I would have the space to come to terms and emotionally process the failure and end of my relationships. And so I found myself much more alone than I was when I set out to write this book. I was solitary and single and not sure how to feel about it all. There is some strange notion that you need to feel some certain way about the end of things. I think the truth is that there's not one way to grieve. Even if each person has their own way to deal with loss, it is not the same with each lost thing. I've felt brokenhearted, I've screamed at the sky, I've laughed and cried and sat perfectly still. I've spent days without eating and weeks without sleeping all the way through the night. I've been angry and tired and beat down and happy and blank and sad and whatever gray in between there is between every emotion. This trip, before it even began, became something entirely different than what I initially intended it to be. This trip was no longer a bandage on a wound which needed much more than a bandage to fix. I think the trip became the first chapter in a new section of my life. Instead of it being a part to a whole of a continuing and stagnating story, it became an opportunity to shed my old skin on the road and come back something new. 4. I think I am good and honest and for the most part a decent person to be around, but maybe this is exactly the type of thing a person who is the inverse of all of those things would say. I try hard in my relationships, I try to give all of myself to the people I care about. I figure the only way to really see others or be seen by others is to show your full and ugly self in all of its complexity and nuance. That being said, I have a lot of failed relationships, ex-girlfriends, ex-friends. I have a long list of people I used to know. I don't know if this is a unique problem that I personally have. Maybe I am too confrontative, or maybe I nitpick too much, or maybe I have false expectations for what somebody else can bring. Maybe I am perfectly fine and just find myself in relationships with crazy people. Maybe I am not fine at all and perfectly normal and sane people find themselves in relationship with crazy me. I have no idea, and I guess that the sad reality of social life is that you'll never really know. I'll never truly hear what people th say about me behind my back. I'll never really be entirely sure whether it is me who is crazy or whether it is everybody else, or if most likely it is some wild mix of the two. But there are some few people I get along with. There are some people whose crazy seems to match mine, if in fact I am crazy. I think I am a good friend and expect others to treat me in a way which I perceive as them being good friends to me, as unbelievable as that sounds. One of these people, one of these handful of dear ones outside of my family, is the person who this trip is based around in some ways. Well, I guess the trip is really based around me, as selfish as that sounds, but my friend is kind of the destination, for I am going to see him and not really to see the place in which he lives. But in many other ways, I am also going on the trip for the purpose of going on a trip, and he is sort of the light at the end of the tunnel, or more the middle of the tunnel. He will be the midpoint of the trip, and while the whole spoken purpose of the trip is to actually go see him, he is just a part of it.
Semantics and rambling clarifications aside, he is one of my oldest friends. We have known each other for nearly two-thirds of my life, and while of course there have been ups and downs, including a time when he slept with my ex-girlfriend a week after said girlfriend and I broke up, we have remained in contact for a long time. If you, the reader, assuming this is ever read, will allow me to get poetic or attempt to for a second, I'd like to try to describe my relationship with this person, my friend, with the same first name as me, who I intend to visit on this trip. 4a. The concept of an onion and its various layers upon layers is something discussed and referenced, in my opinion, to be the blank death beyond cliché. That being said, I'm going to attempt to use an onion, or more the idea of an onion and its many layers in what I think is a new way. So at the center of an onion is a core of sorts. I'm sure this part has a name and I could look up the various parts of the onion, but I don't really care enough about this metaphor to do any research for it. You, the reader, if there ever is such somebody, will just have to bear with me and can go look up the various parts of an onion for yourself if you wish to do so. But anyway, so we have the idea of an onion and under all of the layers there is a core, or pit, or center, whatever it's called. So with that image in mind, I think that my friend with the same name as me and I have that part of ourselves in common. He and I are, at the center, very similar and have within us a resonance sound which matches, or at least comes close to matching. But as we move outward, he and I and our various onion layers of life have been made very different. There is nothing wrong with this difference, and I hold no ill will because of the fact that he and I are leading very different lives but it is a fact that must be acknowledged and sort of worked through every time we talk or when we see each other. Our lives are not alike. He works in sales at a massive and corporate office and dreams of being a multimillionaire. He played football in college and was at one time absolutely enormous with bulging muscles. He doesn't read much in terms of fiction. He has said that he will read my novel, but I don't think he has yet and doubt he ever really will. To be clear, all of this is said without judgment on my part, or at least as much without judgment as I can bear. I am very happy to have him live his best life in the way he wants. All that said, I am different. During college, I lived in over ten countries, fell in love twice at least, and learned that I need to write to stay sane. I currently work as a freelance ghostwriter and editor, but I've worked as a landscaper and a chimney sweep during times when there is no writing work for me to do. I do not wish to be ultra-rich, more my ultimate goal is to find a woman I can love and communicate with, and with that woman who I have not yet met I wish to move to a cabin in the woods, preferably on a large plot of land away from most other people. I wish to live out my life in love, and with my family and a few friends around, simply living. Maybe my dreams are unrealistic or somehow false, and maybe they will change, but I have imagined my own place in the woods for most of my life, and although I don't have it yet, I hope to someday have it soon. So we are different, he and I. That's not much of a surprise. I find that I am different than most everybody else I meet. We have become layered and layered, onion-like, with time and experience and heartbreak and age, but I believe at the core my friend with the same name as me and I are similar, and maybe that is what matters. Maybe that is not enough, and maybe us too will have some great falling out, which will end whatever friendship we have and will make future trips to go see him non-existent. But for now, we are friends, and things seem to be good and happy between us, and maybe they will stay that way, and maybe with this trip we will both add some layer to our onion of life together, and then along with our core and our other shared memories, we will have another layer of ourselves in common. 5. My steed, 
to be dramatic, is a 2001 Subaru Forester with studded snow tires and 215,666 miles. I've named it Mr. Gray. It's a sturdy car and it's been across the country twice. It's been through California and up to Canada and across the Nevada desert. It's once run out of gas because I used the gas money I was given for food and pot instead. It's silver and has some stickers on the back. I bought it used and the sunroof has never worked. I love this car and its big wide windows. The speakers are blown and the internal lights don't work and the headlights are dim and it isn't fancy but it has heated seats and it runs and I can't complain. It's a sturdy and boxy car but it's got zip. I see myself in it, not only literally, but it is kind of like me in personality if that makes sense. It's solid and honest and likes to be treated right. It'll be my only companion on this journey as it has been many times before. Come to think of it, I love this car. It's one of my best friends, and it is mine. I've been on a lot of extended trips, some by plane and some by train and car and bus and on foot. I've been a lot of places. Last summer, I did two drives in a row, one to move my belongings in a big rented U-Haul truck and a second to move my body and soul in my handy Mr. Gray. Those trips were times of heat and joy and wild spontaneity. At night, I would be with friends and loved ones, drinking wine and going out to the redwood forests. During the day, I would drive and drive, screaming lyrics into the deafening wind rip or crying from some story on the radio. I was running from some gray and lonely place. I was coming home. I was fleeing back to my family and the place I know best. This time, though, this trip is different. I'm leaving my home because I have found the stagnation doesn't leave no matter how hard or far I run, nor does the need to sometimes get gone. 6. Orpheus looked back and sent his great love Eurydice to toil in Hades forever. He let his flaws take him over and ruin his life, and the life of the one he loved most. Before I left, I tattooed the name Eurydice into my arm, and through it I put a line. I don't consider myself more of an Orpheus than anybody else, but I've had my share of love and pain and failings. I've had things ruined because of my own misdoings or easily avoidable mistakes. I've had my bad days when it seemed everything I loved had forever gone to hell. But with this newly needled ink in my skin, I hope to be reminded of my fatal flaws. I hope to ponder as I drove the things I've done and wish I hadn't or the things I didn't do and wish I did. Maybe this trip will be a meditation on all the things I wish I hadn't done, on all the bodies on the side of my life's road, on all the minutes and sighs long since passed by. Maybe this trip is a time to be alone with myself and all the things I've done. With some final lasting mark, I hope to haul on into whatever gray infinity lays ahead of us all and to not look back. The trip is only three days away. 7. There's only one way to pack, in my opinion, frantically, the night before the trip is to take place. Here is what I brought. One jar of peanut butter, a water bottle which holds one gallon of water, four pairs of socks, a pair of sandals, a pair of gym shoes, two white t-shirts, one gray t-shirt, one bag of beef jerky. 
I bought two bags of beef jerky for the trip, but ended up eating one on the way home from the grocery store. One pair of polarized sunglasses with a crack in the left lens. Six pairs of underwear, a toothbrush, two button-down shirts, and two sweaters. My computer, three notebooks, the manuscript for my book of short stories to edit, one stick of deodorant, a Polaroid camera with 27 blank photos, two pairs of blue jeans, a book of poems by my favorite poet, a baseball cap, two pairs of shorts, another water bottle, some rice cakes for the peanut butter. I considered bringing a pair of brass knuckles just in case, but I don't really know how to use them and I figured I shouldn't because I think they may be illegal, although I'm not sure. So that's it. I cooked dinner, packed, did a wash, and wrote this all while I got ready. The frantic energy was alive. I hadn't felt so ready to move in nearly a year. I could almost hear the road moving beneath me and feel the wind on my face as I tried to fall asleep. That night, before I left, I dreamed of a big blue sky. Thank you for tuning in to American Wasteland. I so appreciate you supporting my writing. I am trying to write all the time, trying to submit, trying to teach and do everything I can to know as much about writing and reading and anything about the craft. And this podcast has really helped me to practice going through my own writing and also in terms of being able to share my stuff with people that maybe wouldn't read it otherwise. Um, And you, whoever you are, are part of that, part of my craft. As you can hear in the background, there's a siren and there's probably heat in the background as well. And that's kind of part of this podcast, the rawness. All of the stuff that is going on behind me and in my life is very much part of this and influences my stories, and that's why I leave it in. And the music that you're hearing in the background of this part of the intro and the outro is written by my friend Cora Feeder, F-E-D-E-R. Check her out. She has great music, great folk music. And yeah, uh, I try to get a podcast out as much as I possibly can. It's around every two weeks on average. Um, we just reached over 4,000 listens. This is going to be dated pretty quickly because I think we're growing and growing. By we, I mean just me and uh, the American Wasteland SoundCloud account and the iTunes account. So thanks again for tuning in. My website is alexanderjosephwriter.com. I recently updated it, so go check it out. Send me a message. Tell me what you think about the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and tune in next time. <laughs>